0: Would you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1? I hope you are gaining a love for this epistle. And I think the more I study the scripture, the more convinced I am that God clearly communicates to us about his will and his wonderful salvation and how uh, just applicable his word is to our daily life. I think we look at our world and we see how bad it is. And any person that looks at it has to know there's some kind of problem in our world. Humanity has some problem. And we believe the word of God gives us the answer. and It's in Jesus Christ. We have hope in Christ for his salvation. and So we talked about that when we looked at verses 3 through 12. The great salvation God has given to us. And so we're smack in the middle of talking about how we should live that out. And we're saying that, or I should say we're on number four. And today we're going to talk about that we should live that out by loving one another in view of God's regenerative work, his work of regeneration in our lives. And so the fourth command we find here in this section is to love one another. You can see that down In verse 22, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And I I love this text and how just so clearly and practically and really logically lays out what it looks like for us to live as a Christian. In fact, that is a little graphic up here. That's kind of a cool graphic I made up. But first he dealt with our thoughts. Then he dealt with our conduct. He dealt with our motives. Now he's on to our relationships. So we're going to look first at our relationship to others, and then we're going to look last at our relationship to God. And I don't know if you've noticed this, as we've gone through these texts, there's these commands, and surrounding these commands are two verbs, two participles that really explain the reason why we should obey that command. So as I read this text this morning, 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25 Notice that, you'll see that, the command in verse 22, but before and after he gives these reasons. So look at verse 22, in fact, let's do this, let's stand so we can stretch our legs again. Also we'll honor the word of God as I read these verses out loud. So 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. To you. Let's pray. Father, we believe there's power in the Word of God. We believe it has power unto salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that your power will be evident this morning, Holy Spirit. I pray you'll work in our hearts. God, rip away the the sin and the blind spots in our hearts. And God, help us see truly who you are and then how you want us to live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in college, I can remember going to a church in Milwaukee, and there was a gentleman there I met at the church, and he was just an average Joe, he was a carpenter. And and this guy uh, took an interest in me, and each Sunday he would see me and talk to me. And first, we just talked about some simple things. And then he started asking me how I was doing spiritually. Sometimes he'd ask me what God was teaching me. I went to his house a couple of times with his family, got to see how he interacts with his family and got to eat supper with them uh, after, or what do you call it after, is it lunch on Sunday or is it supper after you have church? What do you call it? Dinner? Whatever it is. We got to eat with him after church and uh, he started investing in me. actually invited me to come see him teach Sunday school to children. That was really the first time that someone really took an interest in me in that way and started really discipling me. And at one point, I realized that this guy wasn't just caring for me as some type of friend. This guy was showing me Christian love. We're going to talk about what does Christian love look like this morning. And so we're going to look in our passage here at four facets of love. We're going to look at who are those who are to love. We're going to look at the objects of love, the commitment to love, and then the reason to love. And so we'll see those all in our our text here this morning. So first we're going to look at who are those who are to love. So who is he talking to here and who is he describing are the people who are to show the love of Christ. And so we're going to see that, I believe that he's talking here about people who are converted. Converted souls. So look down at verse 22. You can see that here. Peter describes the ones who are commanded to love as, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So the ones who are to love are the ones who are recipients of God's love, of God's salvation. And I believe the beginning of verse 22, he here is describing conversion. Interesting enough, if you look at verse 23, he describes regeneration. So you have Both of these, the conversion of repent and believe the gospel and regeneration when God resurrects our soul through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. So where do we see conversion here in verse 22? Well, notice the first two words there, one word in the original language, having purified. If you look back to verse 15, you can see we talked about this word and the original root word is the word for holy. So if you look back in verse 22, you can actually translate that right there. You can translate that as as it having purified or having become holy. This is a very interesting word. It's it's our participle that gives us, again, one of the reasons why we should do this command here. But it's an interesting word because it's a perfect tense. In other words, it started at one point in time, and it has continuing results even till today. So when did that start? When did our Purification or our holiness start, well, it started when we first believe, When God did a work in our heart and we repented and we turned to Christ. The other interesting thing about this verb right here is an active, which means it's something that you are choosing to do. You have chosen to say, I am no longer going to follow the way of the world and my sin, and I'm turning and I'm believing in Christ, and I'm believing that he is the one who, who sanctifies and makes me holy. He makes me pure before him. So it's this idea that God has made us holy. That happens at salvation when we believe in him. And then he continues to cleanse me. And we see this, you know, things like 1 John 1, 9, right? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. So there's an initial holiness that God sets us aside as his children, declares us holy, and then he continues to cleanse us as we are his children, as we keep believing in him. And so, so what I see here in this, this first part here is this idea that we are set aside. We are, we, are, um, we are set aside as his holy ones. And this is speaking of this choice that we made to have God cleanse us through Christ. If you think about John 13, that's the passage where Jesus is with his disciples. Remember that story? And he is in the upper room, and they're about to have the Passover, and nobody had their feet washed. There was no, evidently no servant around to do that. And so Jesus girds himself with a towel, and he comes over with the wash basin, and all the disciples are laying around the table there, and he begins to go around and wash their feet. Remember that story? And eventually he gets over to Peter, and Peter says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Evidently, Peter was feeling guilty that Jesus was doing this. I mean, a master does not typically wash the feet of his disciples, right? And so this is not something that usually happens. And and Peter was probably feeling somewhat guilty because maybe it was something he should have done. But he says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And and Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. Of course, then Peter's like, wash everything, you know, (laughs) wash me completely. What's interesting is Jesus says to him, he replies back to him, Oops, I guess I don't have it up here. He replies back to him, and and, uh, in the book of John, he says this. The one who has bathed does not need to wash. So he's saying this, like, listen, I don't need to wash every part of you. You've already taken a bath, right? So some of you took showers or baths this morning or last night, so you're clean. Now, if you would have walked here, you would have probably gotten dirty, maybe not inside of your clothes, but your feet would have gotten dirty. And if we were in this part of the world, you would probably have someone that could wash your feet. Maybe not. I don't know. But, but the point is, that'd be the part of you that is dirty. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's like, listen, you we don't need to wash everything, just your feet. So I'm just going to wash your feet. But then Jesus turns it and uses it into an illustration. He says, he, said, he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And then he says spiritually, you are clean. So the disciples, you are clean. And he says, but not every one of you. Now, there's, there's one person here that actually hasn't been cleansed. So now he's actually talking about their souls. And who's that one? Well, that's Judas, of course, right? So here's Judas, who on the outside looks to be converted because he looks like a good Jewish disciple of Jesus. But on the inside, he's never truly repented of his sin, has he? I mean, here's a guy who just a little bit ago before this, a couple hours before, uh, he had expressed greed and plotted to um, to undermine Jesus and to actually betray him. And so Judas wasn't truly converted. So he wasn't truly clean. You could say it this way. He was never set aside to be a holy disciple of Jesus truly in his heart. And so therefore he was not clean. But the disciples were, and there was a continual cleansing that Jesus said that they, they needed even in their souls. And so my point of saying that is just, it's a good illustration of the difference between true conversion and what is maybe, you could say, false conversion. Eleven disciples, they had followed Jesus. They had turned from their sin and their way of life. They followed Jesus. They were converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And But Judas really never turned from his sin. He really never trusted in Jesus. We could say he never truly was converted. I read an article yesterday that says, that said that on Facebook and Instagram that they're going to start banning any kind of um, ideas posted up about conversion therapy. Conversion therapy kind of is the idea that you can force someone or coerce someone into changing their beliefs, particularly regarding to their sexual desires. And that is not the biblical idea of conversion. So people that have this idea that you can force someone to change their desires you know, by some type of therapy Okay, that is not a biblical idea. So they've taken the word conversion. They've kind of distorted it. Now, I I think eventually at some point that biblical conversion is going to be lumped into that kind of twisted idea of conversion. So, So conversion therapy is not what the Bible teaches. You can't force someone to believe what you want them to believe. There there has it has to be a willing choice they make to say, I am not gonna follow my sin. I'm going to follow the Savior. And it has to be supernatural. There has to be a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. I, I say that to us though, because I think sometimes people can see that word conversion. If you saw that new article, you might think, Oh, are they gonna what is that talking about? Well, there's a there's a worldly idea of even conversion. And I think at some point, we Christians will be restricted. And, and even speaking of conversion in this sense, spiritual, supernatural conversion. So what is biblical conversion? Well, biblical conversion, conversion, just the simple word means to turn. It means to turn. And In the Bible, we believe that biblical conversion means we are turning, we are confessing that we're changing our beliefs from how we believed and lived to now believing that God is the one who changes Us, so we're confessing that we're we're changing our beliefs, that and that God is the one who is changing our souls. So does that make sense? So when you look at that beginning of verse twenty-two, there he says, "Having been purified or having become holy in your soul." It's a description of what happens when we come to Christ, and so it's also though a description of the fact that we made a choice to say we're going to follow. Jesus Christ, and trust that he's going to do this work within us. And then notice how he describes this choice. He says it's obedience to the truth. Now, you might look at that, you might get a little nervous. He's saying coming to Christ is obedience to the truth. You might be thinking, oh, is this work salvation? Is he saying we have to work our, if we're a good person, then we can be saved? Is that what he's saying here? No, it's not what he's saying. So let's, ex- let's explain this, because some people actually go to this text and and they misunderstand this, and they, they think that this is somehow works salvation. This is not that, what Peter has in mind at all. Obedience to the truth means this. Truth is, is, is kind of the same thing as the word gospel. It's kind of a, you can interchange those, those terminology, that terminology there. And the truth of the gospel is this. We're sinners. We are, are condemned by God. Jesus came to live and die and died in our place. And if we turn from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life. That's generally the gospel. In fact, Jesus taught this, right? Jesus came to Galilee. He proclaimed the gospel, and he said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he gave these commands, repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus preached the truth, the gospel truth, and then he commanded people to do this, to repent. That means turn from your beliefs and believe what he is saying. Jesus was not saying, you know, now you've heard the good news. Now go live a good life or try to be a good person. That's not gospel. He's saying, repent of your sin and turn to me. And so what's, what's the idea of obedience here? What's the idea that you obey the command? What, the commands. And what are the commands? Repent and believe the gospel. So he's not saying be obedient in the fact that you try to do good, more good works. It's that you're being obedient and responding to Christ in the right way, and that is, I'm a sinner. I deserve to be condemned. You're the only one that is holy. You're the only one that can save me from my sins. I give my life to you. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, particularly in, in, in Peter here, you can see these different times where Peter uses the, um, the terminology of obedience in regard to how a person comes to Christ. Look down in verse um, chapter 2, verse 7. So 1 Peter 2, 7. The Bible says, really describes two groups of people. So verse 7 says, so the honor is for you who believe. So there's believers. But for those who do not believe. So you see these two groups, believers and non-believers. And look in verse 8. In the middle of verse 8, he says, they, speaking of unbelievers, stumble because they disobey the word. As they were destined to do. So the idea is this, is that they didn't believe, which means what? They didn't obey the command to believe. Okay, so look down in in chapter 3, verse 1. Here it's describing husbands who are not believers, and you have wives who are believers. And he says that unbelieving husbands are are those who, verse 1, do not obey the word. And then look down in chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. Again, another description of this. He says, verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. If it begins with us, what will the outcome for those be who do not obey the gospel, or you could say the truth, of God? Does that make sense? You see this in the scriptures, this idea that he's saying you need to obey the gospel. And so a person who does not do that, who does not repent and believe and obey those commands, is a person who is not truly converted. I remember struggling with my salvation when I was a child, and with a teenager. And there are many times when I prayed, and many times I was just concerned, where I would be sleeping at night or waking up from my sleep at night and thinking, "I don't know what what, what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm truly a believer or not." And then I can remember coming to the place where I recognize, you know what, Ben? I don't. I think that I'm trusting in my own goodness. Particularly, I was at a camp and I heard someone speaking the gospel, and then I heard someone give a testimony. And it became clear to me that week that I actually was not a believer. I was a person who just thought I was good enough for God. And so I recognized I needed to turn from that idea and from that belief system and actually truly come to Christ. But that was actually more difficult than it seemed like on the the face of it because I was a pastor's kid. And everyone considered me to be a good person. So if I were to tell everyone that I wasn't a believer and especially if I had to get re-baptized in the church, like that was going to be super embarrassing for me, especially since I'm pretty certain I had already been baptized before that after having the same kind of thing happen. So it was like I kind of have finally come to this understanding that I'm not a believer, and it was actually very difficult to to admit that. And I can remember one uh, time when I guess it was in the morning, I'm pretty certain maybe it was the evening, but when someone was speaking and my heart was just so convicted by it, and I just came to the place where I was like, I have to, I have to break before the Lord, and I just have to confess that I need Him, and so I turn to the Lord. My point is, is that there are times when people are—I there, I should say—there are people that are in situations where they might understand the truth, but actually repenting and turning to Christ is a very difficult thing for them. Judas was one of those kind of people. Judas, at some point, understood something right about Christ. But he loved his money. He didn't want to give up his greed. Some people don't want to give up their sin. Some people don't want to give up their religious traditions. And so it's like, I understand what the Bible says, but I actually don't want to turn from that. And therefore, I'm not going to turn to Christ. But true conversion is repenting and believing the gospel. So why does Peter put it in these terms? Like, what's his whole point here? I mean, why is he describing conversion like this? And particularly describing it as a choice that we are making to to apply the holiness of Christ to us. Well, I think what he's doing here is he's giving a contrast here between here's how the world lives and how does the world live in regard to relationships? Generally selfish, generally they they do things for their own self, but he's saying like, listen, you at salvation, you chose to be set aside by Christ to live differently and therefore it changes your relationships. And what does that look like if we're we're to be holy as Christ is holy. That means we're to love like Christ loves, which look down in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. What does that look like? It means for a sincere brotherly love. So verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. In other words, you're you're truly confer- converted for this purpose, for a sincere brotherly love, which then leads us to the next. Next facet of love, and that is the objects of love. Who are the objects of love? On verse 22, it says what? For a sincere brotherly love. Those are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. So here, Peter gives us one, one purpose of our conversion. Now, if I were to ask you, if I were to say, why? Why has God saved you? What would be the answer to that? What would you say is an answer for that? Why has God saved you? You might say, he saved us to bring him glory, right? To glorify him. And I would say, yes, that's the ultimate reason why God does everything. It's for his own glory. And so even our salvation, probably not even our own salvation, but especially our salvation brings him glory. So yes, that's the overarching ultimate purpose, why God does everything. You might say, well, it's because God wants to be in a relationship with me and he wanted to make me holy through Christ. Absolutely, that's definitely a purpose. And so we could come up with a couple of those. But what about in our relationships with other people? What is is the purpose of God's salvation in regard to our relationships with other people? Well, here in this text, he actually gives us a purpose. And what is the purpose? He says it's for, here's the purpose, conversion, you're converted for the purpose of sincere brotherly love. You are converted so that you can love people. 2 Corinthians 5, 15 says that Jesus died for all, that you can have a ticket to heaven. Is that what it says? No. It says, it says that, so that you would not live for yourself, but you would live for him who died for you and rose again. Do you real, realize God gave you salvation so that you would live your life not for yourself, but you would live it for him? And what is the way that Christ wants us to live for him? It's loving people that he loves. And who are those people, particularly in this text right here, that he is calling us to love? Well, in verse 22, he says, have brotherly love. Have brotherly love. This is the word Philadelphia. So what does the word Philadelphia mean? It's the city of brotherly love, right? Now, probably many of those people in that town don't even know that's the case. But, but anyways, they probably would change it if they knew it was brotherly love. Probably should include sisters in there and stuff too. But anyways, but that's, that's kind of the idea here, is, is that you are to love brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not saying you should love like a brother loves his sister, right? I mean, look at children and how they love each other. That's, that's not really the best example. It's, it's talking more about the objects of your love. Like who are the objects of our love? Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so one of the purposes of our salvation is so that we would love each other. I, I see this pulpit up here and it's a pretty good pulpit. It's pretty nice. This morning, one of the guys fixed the the electrical on this. He did some soldering this morning. And so it's working pretty well. But what what is the purpose for this this black little pulpit up here? Well, it's to hold my Bible. It's for someone to be able to use this and be able to speak and communicate whatever they're communicating. If this didn't work, if this thing fell apart, or even when that little cord was severed and wasn't working, does it fulfill its purpose? I mean, if it doesn't work, does it do what it's made to do? No. I mean, it's good to just throw in the trash out there, right? Or for someone to come and fix it. So thank you guys for doing that. And and the same thing really goes for us. Like, what is the purpose that we uh, have been saved? It's so that we would love one another. And what kind of love is this? It's a familial love. It's a family love. My sister has come here before. You guys have seen her and saw her on Zoom a couple months ago. And so we have a pretty close relationship. Didn't always have that growing up, but anyways, but we had a pretty close relationship. We were in college and Dana and I were dating. And we were kind of in that stage of I liked her and she wasn't sure if she liked me. And so uh, Sarah, my sister, cornered Dana one day. I don't know if she'd really, I don't know if she pinned her up against the wall, but basically she pinned her against the wall, and said, if you hurt my brother, I'm going to hurt you. That's the kind of sister you want right there, right? Why did my sister do that? Well, it was not because I was a great brother growing up. That's for certain. There was a special bond because we're family, right? So when you're family, you do certain things that you probably typically wouldn't do with other people. And that's what he's talking about here. There's this Family relationship that we have. And where, what is this family relationship? Well, it's those who are in Christ. The family we call the church, the church. And, and, and yes, Christ wants us to love everyone. He wants us to love our enemies even. But there's a special love that God calls us to for those who are in Christ, for Christians, particularly those who are within the family of the church. I think sometimes people miss this. We talk about love in many just general ter- terms. But if you look through the New Testament, what you'll see is over and over here, God calls us to be committed, sacrificially committed to each other. In fact, turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is, I'll put some of these on the screen, but if you can turn, that would be great. John chapter 13, again, uh, a text where Jesus has just finished the Passover meal. And he exits with his disciples. Judas went off to betray him. And so Jesus speaks to these 11. And he says, listen, I ha- listen. I have a commandment for you. So verse 34 of chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you. So here's something, guys. You, this is something that's new. You should love one another. So here's a category of people that you should be committed to, and that is to each other. And of course, Jesus is starting the church of Jesus Christ. These are the apostles who are going to actually be the ones to go out and plant churches and teach the gospel and teach the apostles' doctrine. So he's saying, guys, there's a, there's a special commitment that you have to make. He says, just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. And again, he's not saying you don't love other people, but he's saying there's a special commitment that you're to make to one another. In fact, look in verse 35, right after that, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How does the world know that we're different? What is one of the lights that shines that shows that we are different? It's how we treat each other. It's how we treat each other within the church, within the Christian church, the body of Christ. Go over to Acts chapter 2. You can see this played out in Acts as Peter preaches to 3,000 people. They obey the gospel, if you want to say it that way. They come to Christ. Then they gather together as a church. And you can see them loving each other and how they interact with each other. In verse 44, Acts 2, 44, the Bible says, and all who believed, so all these believers, all those those 3,000 believers plus the you know couple that were in the upper room there, they all gathered and they had all things in common. So here you see this church family gathered together, and how do they show love to one another? They pooled their resources together to take care of people within the church, but also to proclaim the gospel. And we see that as we march through the book of Acts, you see those two different kind of uh, Scenario is taking place where you see that there's people that need care, there's widows that need care, and there's people that are in need. And then you also see this idea that people need to be sent out with the gospel, or some people are being sent out because of persecution and they need resources. In fact, here's a good text in Acts 6 7 it says that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And just think about that. Think about these priests in the temple and they are sacrificing lambs, they're doing their priestly du- duties. And if you're a priest, and you believe that Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice, then what happens to your job? It becomes obsolete, right? In other words, you lose your job. Or, or if you're a Jewish person, and then you become a Christian, you're working for another Jew, what, what happens to your job? You So you have all these people who who... Frankly, were unemployed, right? They're like they're turning from their way of life, of how they operated before. They're turning to Christ now. They're struggling. They're struggling to feed their own families, and so the church is pooling its resources so that it can help these people, just frankly, survive. In fact, if you look down in verse forty-four of Acts two, you can see they had all things in common, and I like to highlight this because a lot of people twist this. They kind of view this as like socialism, political socialism, you know, we should all pool our resources and we should, you know, give our money to the government so they can take care of people. That's actually not what he's saying here. First of all, it's not given to the government. It's given to the church. Another um, uh, point here is that this is, people weren't giving everything away. The idea isn't you give everything to the church. The idea, now they did give sacrificially, like Definitely beyond 10%, okay? So they definitely gave sacrificially. But it's the idea is, I, I'm in God's family now, so all of my possessions no longer belong to me. They belong to God. Therefore, I will use all of my possessions in whatever way I can to be able to care for those people to whom I am committed. And so again, it's not giving everything to the church. It's not what they were doing here, but they were saying, listen, everything I have, I God owns it, so God can do whatever he wants with what." I have. And again, they were giving these resources to the church. In fact, look in verse 45, where it says they were selling their possessions and belongings. And again, it doesn't say all of them. And Let me back up and say this. If they if meant all of them, then they wouldn't be able to give, be able to do this later on in the book, right? I mean, in other words, they're, they would have run out of resources at some point. So, But they gave Uh, Sacrificially, they distributed to all who had need, and those are the people within the church. In fact, you can see this. Go to Acts chapter 4 and verse 34. Let me note again, this is actually something they are willingly doing. No one's coercing them to do it. This is their own choice. They're saying, I want to give this to help people. Verse 34 of Acts 4 there was not a needy person among them. So within the church there, everyone had their needs taken care of because they sacrificially gave. For as many as were owners of lands and, or houses, they sold them. So people are selling their possessions, big things. And they brought the proceeds of what they sold. And where did they bring it to? Verse 35, they laid it at the apostles' feet. Who were the apostles? They were the ones at the time that were in charge of the church. And it was distributed to each as had need. And so there's there's a, there's a historical context to all this, but the point is this is that you see this the church coming together and they're saying, "Listen, we're all one body. God owns everything we have. We're going to we're going to commit our life to Jesus Christ and we're going to commit ourselves to each other." And so these people lovingly, sacrificially gave to each other. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. If you know the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are basically doctrine. And then in Romans 12 he says, "Okay, Now let's talk about how we live that out. And what's interesting about Romans chapter 12 is you actually see him speaking a lot about how we should love one another. And so you look in Romans 12 verse 5, he talks about how we are one body and we are individually members of one another. So we're one family here. We're one body in Christ. And he talks about spiritual gifts. And he's saying, listen, we're given spiritual gifts so we can love each other. And then he goes through how we can love each other. Look at verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. So again, this is written to a church, the church of Rome. And he's saying, you should love one another. I mean, why has God written all this doctrine in in Romans 1 through 11? It's so you can live it out. And he says, how do you live it out? love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Can you imagine what that would be like to live in a community like that? That everyone comes in and they think to themselves, I'm going to love that person way more than they love me. And they're always trying to outdo the other person. Now, just think about your family. Can you imagine if that was like that in your family? You know, it's like you're going to go home today and and someone's like, hey, mom, we're going to do the dishes for you today. Oh, no, no, mom. I'm going to clean the bathroom for you. I'm going to one-up that, you know. I mean, can you imagine if that happened in your family? Can you imagine if that happened within the church here? If we all treated each other like that, we said, I'm going to outdo each other in showing honor and loving. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints. I'm going to give to help people. I'm going to seek to show hospitality to one another. And so we could go through all these texts here, right? I mean, you can see in chapter 12 here all these different ways that we should love each other. Go to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to... Going to go through a couple of examples here. And 1 uh, Corinthians is the last one I have. Again, 1 Corinthians written to the church of Corinth. So this is to a church. And Paul taught they should love one another. In fact, if you look through the texts of really 1 Corinthians uh, 8 and 9, he talks about how we should um, be considerate of the consciences of other people. And it's in the context that we should love one another. So loving people sometimes means I have a strong opinion or I have uh, I have an area where I can do something, but someone else might be offended. And I choose to withhold my strong opinion or withhold my right for the good of that person. Honestly, one of the best examples for me and today is is this right here, right? This masker here. I mean, there's some people in here that you wear masks throughout the week to protect yourself. And there's some people that don't. Some people are like, I don't need to wear a mask. I don't have to wear one. But some of those people come here and they wear a mask. Now, why would a person that says, I don't, I don't think you have to wear a mask, why would they wear a mask in a setting like this, particularly when they're welcoming people in and we have all of our volunteers are required to wear masks, why would someone do that? Because they're saying, I will be willing to give up my rights for the good of another person. I think it's a great example of someone saying, I'm going to love people, even though I maybe not be a, a mask person, I'm going to do that. I'm going to help people come in here. I'm going to volunteer in the church in this way and then doing so. And does it mean these people are better than these people? It's not what it means. It means this. I'm going to do anything I can to show love and kindness to another person, even if that means giving up my rights. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 8. And, you know, 1 Corinthians 8 is speaking about uh, a believer who has a strong, um, or I should say a believer who has a weak conscience in a particular area and you as a believer having a stronger conscience in that area. But if you sin against your brother, verse 12 says, and you wound their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. So we, we are considerate of the consciences of other people, and we have this spiritual awareness that, that seeks to love people and give up my rights if necessary. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Again, I'm not going to go through all these things, but 1 Corinthians 10 kind of gives this example of you're in an unbeliever's home and there's something that the unbeliever offers to you, particularly in this case, a meat offered to an idol, and you recognize idols are nothing. doesn't mean anything, right? It's just a piece of stone, just a piece of meat. I can eat it. But if there's a a brother or sister in Christ who is weak in their conscience in regard to that area, and you know that eating that would sin against your brother, who should, you, who should you, whose conscience should you defer to? Should it be to the unbeliever or should it be to the believer? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 makes it clear you should defer to the believer. Like, if it's gonna cause your brother to sin, then you're gonna say, no, thank you, I don't want any meat, I don't wanna offend my brother. Or how about 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Look down in verse 17. Of course, this is the text that talks about communion. And he's saying, let me give you some instructions because there's some things happening within the church. Look in verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, so here you have this gathering as a church family, he says, I hear there are divisions among you. So here Paul is addressing their lack of brotherly love with one another when they gather as a church. And this is in the context of the Lord's table. Remember the Lord's table? That was when before COVID when we were able to do that. Remember that? It's a long time ago, wasn't it? But hopefully we'll get to back to that at some point here. But the Lord's table is a time for us to worship Christ and to examine our own self. But what, what are we examining here in this text? I mean, you look at it in verse 28. He says, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the, of the cup. What are we examining? Well, we're examining our relationship to God and our relationships with one another. In other words, the context of this passage is this, is he's saying, listen, there's disunity among you. You're not loving people in the church. And so when you take the Lord's Supper, you need to examine yourself if you truly are loving people or if you have problems with one another. So is there a problem with you and someone else in the church? Do you have something unresolved with someone in the church? Then if you go to the Lord's table and you Um, examine yourself, you shouldn't take of the Lord's table. You should go and reconcile with that person. I've had times throughout my ministry where I've sat down with someone and they start explaining a problem and they said, yeah, I I had this problem with a person and oh, wow, okay, well, have you resolved it with them? No, it's about three or four years ago. Whoa, three or four years ago. And I think the thing that kind of shocks me about it is this. I think back to all the communions we had for those three or four years and think to myself, Did you examine yourself to see if you were reconciled with that person? And do you recognize the seriousness of not being reconciled to someone if you come to the Lord's table? In fact, you can see that down in verse 29. He says, if you eat and you drink without discerning the body, the Lord's body, you eat and drink judgment. Like, it's it's very serious. If you don't have, if you have broken relationships in the church here and you come to the Lord's table, you should examine yourself and, and see if you, um, are at odds with anyone and if you're truly unified with people. and if you're not, you should seek to reconcile that. Then you go to First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians 12, he says, "There are gifts within the body of Christ. Look down in verse 26, he says, we're all members of one another. So if one member suffers, we all suffer. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. In other words, we're all one family, so we all suffer together. We rejoice together because we love each other. And then he goes over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, did anyone have this this passage read at your wedding? This read at anyone's wedding? Okay. So this is typically a passage people read at their weddings, which is not a problem. It's no big deal. It's a great passage, the love text. But do you realize that this this passage here is actually speaking directly to the church and how we interact with one another? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and and think about it in the context of how we are to be committed to one another. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal, right? I could be the best teacher in the whole world, but if I don't have love, does it really matter? And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, right? If I'm like, hey, I'm giving everything away for the cause of Jesus Christ, but I'm actually not doing it in love, I've gained nothing. And this is actually how we should interact with each other. Verse 4, love is patient, it's kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, Kind of a hard one to do. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. That's probably a good one to say again in the context of a church. (laughs) It endures all things. Love never ends. And we could go through the 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 New Testament over and over and over see that God calls us as a church to unconditionally uh, love him and to love each other. So I could go through some more texts here, but I don't think I'm going to do that. Over 100 times in the New Testament, we see this word, this Greek word love, or this Greek word one another. Two words in English, one word in Greek. 59 of those times that the word one another is used, it's actually related to specific commands for how we're to interact with each other in the church. And 16 of those times relate to the specific command to love one another. And so that's the command we find in 1st Peter. So you can go back to 1st Peter chapter 1. And so here in 1st Peter 1, he commands us to love one another. And, and what does that look like? What does it look like to love one another? Why well, it's listed some, some different uh, one another passages on the screen up there, and you can look at that. But I think it's good for us to ask ourselves, are we truly living this one another commitment with each other? Are we truly loving one another? And many times we think of it in the realm of just the physical, like, oh, I'm going to get a meal for this person, or I'm going to call this person, and that's that's good. But what's interesting is you look at these one another passages, it's actually many of them are in the context of spiritually helping each other. It's not the idea that I just volunteer for something once in a while. It's like, I'm actually going to invest in people's lives. I'm going to, I'm going to carry another person's burdens. I'm going to build someone up. I'm going to encourage that person. I'm going to speak to them in psalms and hymns. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to confess my sins to them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to show hospitality to them. I'm going to serve them. In fact, one of the passages we use a lot to say, hey, we should all be gathering as a church is Hebrews 10, where it says that we're to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So here's another one of these one another passages. And what does it tell us to do? It says we're to gather together. And many times we like to pull that out, right? And we say, hey, listen, church, you should be gathered together. But actually, what's the purpose in this text of gathering together? It's to stir one another up to love and to good works. So now we have, we have a different time with COVID, okay? So let's pretend it's not COVID That's actually a really great thing to pretend and imagine. But anyways, let's imagine it's not COVID right now. Let's pretend it's regular church and the people at home are able to be with us and all that kind of stuff. If you just come to church, you sit in your pew and you go home, are you obeying this command to gather with the church? No, actually the command isn't just to come and sit. It's actually to stir people up, to love one another, to to encourage them. And so we are to love one another. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22 says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Uh, we have this summer internship we're doing with these guys, and um, it's a great time to be able to invest in them. One of the things I've said to them over and over is uh, that one of their responsibilities is to meet with people during the week. So, Some of them have gotten with you um, during the week. And the reason for that is because ministry isn't just about doing things. It's not just about speaking or about, you know, having some activity. It's actually people, right? Ministry is people, and you can't really minister to people unless you're with people. And so I'll tell them, like, you know, if you're going to be a shepherd someday, you have to learn what it's like to be around the sheep. You know, shepherds are with sheep, and shepherds smell like sheep. So therefore, if you're doing an internship at the end of the summer, you should smell like the sheep, right? So, and one of the things I tell them is like, when you're coming into a Sunday, you have to be aware that ministry isn't just about events and people, or events and things, it's about people. So when you're coming into here, you're recognizing there's there's people here that have needs. You're actually intentionally thinking, who are some of the people that are going to be here? How can I pray for them? Then when you see them, you're thinking, how can I interact with you during this week? Can there be a time I can meet with you? My point is, one of the things I try to teach them is that if you're going to be a minister to people, that's what being a pastor is, if you're going to shepherd people, you need to be able to be intentional about gathering with people. When you come to gather with the church, think, how can I minister to these people, not just today, but throughout this week? And I think that's actually not just a great lesson for them. I think it's a great lesson for all of us. When we come in here, it shouldn't just be, where do I sit normally and how can I get out of here? Now, with COVID, you might be thinking that, and that may be okay because you're trying to protect yourself from being sick. So ignore that part of it, okay? But just in general, in the church, our heart's desire should be to minister to each other, to love one another. And so here he speaks about the commitment that we are to have with one another. Oops, that did not mean to happen. I shared about a year, I guess it's about a year and a half ago, our vision statement. And that is that we are a community of Christ's disciples who are committed to Christ and to one another. And if you remember when we talked through this, I said commitment to Christ means that we have, we've repented and believed the gospel, so that's conversion. And we picture that in baptism. But then committed to each other means we're unified as a membership and we serve one another. And how do we picture that? Through the Lord's table. And I want us to remind ourselves of this. I think in a text like this, it's a good time to remember this. And that is that when you became a member of Lighthouse Bible Church, you committed, first of all, you, you demonstrated you're committed to Christ, but you also committed to the people of the church. And it wasn't just a physical commitment, I'll, I'll be here, but it was a commitment to say, I am committed to you spiritually. Like, I will invest in you spiritually. I will serve you. So I guess I, I just ask you, if you're a member of Lighthouse Bible Church, do you remember that commitment you made? And if you're not a member of the church, whether you're listening on, on online or you happen to be here for whatever reason, you're not a member of the church, I would actually invite you to become a member of a church. In other words, invite you to commit yourself to a church and you say well why why do that I remember uh, I've had a number of times I've sat down with different individuals over the different ministries I've had and uh, one guy uh, at one point asked me he said why should I be a member of a church and I said well I think it uh, clearly shows that you are committed to Christ and to us and he says well I am I'm sitting here with you I'm committed to Christ and you I'm sitting here with you and I said well will you be willing to tell the church that you know and he's like, well, yeah, I guess I'd tell the church that. I was like, it's called church membership. <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't know if I really want to do that. And I, he goes, I'd like to keep my options open. And I said, well, it's kind of like the girl that's dating the guy, and she comes to him and says, I, I, don't you think it's about time we get married? Like, and he goes, well, I don't know. I'm, marriage is such a commitment. I kind of want to keep my options open. What would you recommend to her about dating that guy? <laughs> And it's kind of the same way at the church. You know, some people are like, I don't want to become a member. And and sometimes, not all the time, people think, well, I don't kind of want to keep my options open. But you can't have true commitment without accountability, right? So one of the things church membership does is it gives you accountability. So if you say, I don't care about Jesus, and you walk away from Jesus, we're all going to chase after you and say, no, 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 wait, wait. You made a commitment to Christ. You told the church that. Or or if they say, I'm going to sin against this person. I don't care about this person. We're going to go, no, 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 no. You made a commitment to one another, to, to love one another. So I just I say that to to our membership, to say, hey, let me renew your commitment to Christ. Renew your commitment to each other. And then if you're not a member of a church, let me invite you to talk to a church about that. And if you're in our area, please talk to us about that. And the last point we're not going to get to, that is the, the third point. And that is the commitment of love is a sacrificial love. And so if you can see down in verse 22, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And the word love here is different than the word brotherly love. This is the word love one another. Love there is agape. It's the word that's used to describe God's love for us. It's this unconditional commitment that you make And actually, the grammar of this verb is very interesting. It's actually an aorist, which actually points to the idea that this is a firm, devoted commitment that you have made. I am committed to loving one another. I am committed to loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, obviously, I wasn't able to get through the whole text today, so we'll pick up with the rest of this next week. I guess I want to just conclude with really the main thought I have for us today, and that is this, that Christ has called you to be committed in your love to one another. How are we doing as a church in loving each other? And again, I know it's difficult during this time to love people like we did five months ago. Now, I will say that many of you have done what you're doing because you love people, and that's a good thing. But how can we love people within the context of what we have right now? How can we love people that are at home and that some have very, I guess they have gotten out a little bit, but not very much. How can you love those people? How can you love some people in our church who are spiritually struggling? How can you love some people in our church who have marriages that are that, that needs someone else to speak into the marriage, or you have parents who, who need someone to encourage them. How can we love each other as a church? And so I guess as I conclude this morning, we're going to have a time where we're going to have a time of silence and prayer. And I guess I would ask you to go before the Lord and say, Lord, how can I be committed in my love for the church, and for one another? So let's bow our heads and go before the Lord. Maybe you're a person that's been listening online, or maybe you're in here listening, and you think, you have thought to yourself, no, I don't think I'm really converted. don't think I've really turned and believed in Christ. And so let me encourage you this morning to call out to him to turn and truly believe in the Lord. And then believers, church, would you ask yourself that question before the Lord this morning? Lord, am I truly loving my church? Am I truly loving one another? Show me what my commitment is truly.